you've got your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 8. We're continuing through our study of Luke. And after today, we will be a third of the way through that study. Hopefully that excites you. I don't know how you should feel about that, but, but man, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's only, it only gets better from here. So, um, so praise God. Happy, as, as, uh, as Dad said, happy Mother's Day and happy anniversary. And, and as I was just sitting there, um, as, as we were singing right now, I was, uh, I was, I was looking, and uh, as, we, as we think 40, through 49 years of, of ministry here at CBC, um, there have been people who've come and gone, and um, what, what's really cool, though, is, is to think through, and, and I know some of you have been here for many of those years and many of those decades, it's just cool to think about, like, I, I know some of you saw Cameron as just a little young man, a little, little kid. Some of you probably saw him born and have known him since he's been born. And to, and to, see, him, to see him up here leading worship now and who've been, as a young man who's been discipled by many of you in this church, and have been, you've poured your life into a young man. And, and, you've, and I've seen, I, I remember, I remember when, when like Matheson was just a young, young kid. How old are you now, Matheson? I can't hear that. 15, 16, 19, 30? <laughs> 50. I remember, I remember when he was just a little tyke running around the halls here, and now he's up here uh, leading the congregation in worship. I remember when Audrey was, was just a, a young girl as, as well. And isn't it cool to see just generations rising up and, and, uh, and helping lead within our church? God, God is good, and he has been faithful. And uh, there are, there are there, I believe there are good days ahead, uh, Community Bible Church. I believe... We got, we've had 49 good years, and I believe we've got many, many more to come by God's grace. So may we remain faithful. May we remain steadfast. May we remain unified in Christ Jesus, not in politics, not in skin color, not in any other worldly thing, but may we see that our unity comes alone in Christ Jesus. Well, it is Mother's Day, and um, this may disappoint you this morning, but this is, not, this is not a Mother's Day text, so I won't, I won't forget that we were, sitting, uh, we were sitting there on Wednesday night a few weeks ago, and, and Miss Liz in the back, she, uh, she, she was telling Matt uh, after, the, after, the, after his Easter sermon that she's like, I've, it, wasn't a, it, was, it wasn't like a traditional Easter sermon. And so uh, and Matt killed it, Matt crushed it, Matt, Matt did a great job, and, 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 and really, honestly, every every. Every sermon, if you preach it from the Word, it's a, it's a resurrection sermon, amen? But this one's not a traditional Mother's Day sermon, so stick with me, Liz, stick with me, we, we, okay? Um, we find an interesting story here this morning in, in Luke chapter 8, and as I, as I think about this story, I think about one of my, one of my all-time favorite television shows, um, it's a show 24. Oh, six heads per cup. Not, not you younger kids, just some of the folks that are maybe around my age, a little older. There was a show called 24. Remember that? I guess it's been close to, man, like 20 years now. Man, that's, that's forever for you kids. But for me, that feels like just yesterday I was turning on the TV Monday nights and we were watching Jack Bauer save the world one day at a time. You kids, you, uh, I know a lot of you young kids are finally getting into the office and things of that nature and friends and you're, you're going on Netflix and you're loving all these shows that my generation loved. Look up 24. It's awesome. But the one thing that was made 24 so compelling to me was it was one giant story, but within that giant story, there are a lot of other different smaller stories wrapped up in this one giant story and somehow in the end, these bunch of smaller stories ended up to be one giant grand narrative. And as I think about this text today, we see, uh, albeit a smaller picture of that, we see really two stories that are wrapped up in this one larger story that point to Jesus Christ, our hope. And I pray that we see that this morning, this, as Jesus encounters two very desperate people Two people who seem to be hopeless. Two people 
who need help. Two people who are struggling. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel hopeless. I, 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 I know we've, we've mentioned the mothers in here. I know Mother's Day is a hard day for, 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 for many people, for, for many women, for, for a variety of reasons. Maybe you feel hopeless because you've lost a child and this day reminds you of that. And so this day is hard for you. Maybe this day is hard for you because you had a mom who was terrible to you. Maybe this day you struggle because you desire to have a child with, with, with all your heart and, 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 and the Lord hasn't given you that yet. Maybe this, maybe this morning your, your, your children are, are, are wayward and it's struggling for you. And so you come this morning to a day like Mother's Day and you feel helpless. You feel hopeless. You feel struggle. And in your heart it aches. This morning we encounter... Jesus Christ, who brings peace. We encounter Jesus Christ, who brings hope. We encounter Jesus Christ, who brings life and joy and comfort. So if you come here this morning, understand this is my main point. Jesus is the answer to every person without hope. Jesus is is the answer to every person without hope. So may we gaze upon Christ as we read the text this morning. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Please follow along as I read. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, And falling at his feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Oh, but Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Now she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. May God bless the reading of his word. My, first, my main point again is Jesus is the answer to every person without hope. Sub point one, Jesus brings hope to the unclean. 
Jesus, he brings hope to the unclean. As we consider the, the, the context here in verse 40, it, it first mentions here that, that Jesus had returned. Returned from where? Well, if you remember from, from Tom's sermon last week as he, as he uh, faithfully preached about Jesus healing the demoniac, Jesus, he, he, he travels across the sea and, and, and he encounters a man who is, who is filled with many demons. And everyone in the town knew about this man with demons so much they, they had shackled him up with chains. This guy was crazy. He was, he was loco. And so ultimately this, this, this man would break out of these chains and he was probably likely viewed in this town as a, as a, as a terror. And, and Tom obviously pointed this out last week, and I'm, I'm not going to rehash the sermon, but when this man encounters Jesus, Jesus heals the man. This very public demon-possessed man was healed. He was healed by the words of our Savior. Period. Jesus' sovereignty over the spiritual realm was on full display. So much that the whole crowd gathered and they were fearful of such a man. Jesus comes and he, after that encounter, he returns. He returns back to Galilee. And as, as, as he returns here, he finds this giant crowd waiting for him. As we're going to see over these next few chapters, Jesus' fame and notoriety, it is spreading. This isn't some like little small secret. As we're going to see next week, Jesus' fame is is reaching even to the points of of Herod, the government officials. Everybody is finding out who Jesus is. Everybody's wanting to see Jesus. But you know what Jesus is primarily known for at this point? Jesus is primarily known as a miracle worker. You want your disease healed? Come to Jesus. You want your problems fixed? Come to Jesus. Because he's powerful enough to do that. He's sovereign enough to do that. And so we get these crowds coming. And most of these, most of these crowds, they're not, they're not looking to worship the Savior here. They're not, they're not looking to worship the Messiah. They're looking to have their ailments fixed. Maybe there's some who are demon-possessed. They want to be freed of the demons. But we get this giant crowd that welcomes Jesus, waiting for him there. And as Jesus and his disciples step off this boat, they encounter this crowd. There's one man, more than any, that that, that kind of bursts from the crowd. He's got to be the first in line to meet Jesus. He's got to be the first one. It's urgent. No, no, you you guys get behind me because, because my need is urgent. There's a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of a synagogue. There isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation between a ruler of a synagogue then and and, and now, but the the closest correlation that you might find would be like the elder of a church. That's probably the closest correlation. Not the same thing, so don't put words in my mouth, but it's to kind of get in the mindset. It was an individual who would be in charge of of leading the synagogue there, who would be in charge of, of... deciding who, who was going to preach and the administration of, of the local synagogue. Um, he was a man of high character, typically. A man of notoriety. Of, of respect. So it wasn't just some kind of like scumbag guy or some shady guy. These were people who were very, very, very well respected in their community. Very well thought of. Very well respected religious leader. And as we've seen so far in Luke, the religious leaders are not very fond of Jesus. We've seen the Pharisees and the scribes already criticizing Jesus as basically accusing Jesus of breaking the law so far. We've already seen Jesus come and preach in synagogues and basically he gets kicked out and they want to kill him. Okay, so uh, Jesus' reputation among folks in religious leadership it's not great so far. And it's only going to get worse. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The religious leaders are not going to like Jesus. Period. 
Most of them aren't going to come around. And so we see this man, Jairus. And we see him fall at Jesus' feet. He bursts through the crowd. He's probably waiting on Jesus. And he bursts through the crowd. And and, and, and he, he encounters Jesus. He falls at his feet. I, I don't, you know, the text doesn't lend itself to why he fell at Jesus' feet. I mean, I'm not going to assume anything. I don't want to assume that it's worship. I, I, I think, if anything, it assumes he knew this man was powerful enough to do something because he'd heard about this man. He maybe even seen this man, and, and he falls at his feet because he's desperate and he's humble. And he has, he's, he's down to his last resort. He has nothing to offer. He has no hope. Nothing. No hope. And, and as we see why, what, what would cause such a man of stature, a man of dignity, a man of respect, a man whose whole lifestyle was tied up in, in, in being a religious leader and, and interacting with other religious leaders and, and probably, probably many of which had already had many discussions about who Jesus was and their disdain for him, to risk his reputation to risk it all, to fall at the feet of this rabbi, this controversial, powerful rabbi. When we see here, it's he had a daughter. He had a daughter. You know, a daughter will change a man. You have a daughter. Your father, you have a daughter. Having a daughter changes a man. I don't mean to be controversial. But I mean this. This is bad. Some of you guys aren't going to like this, but it's fine. I never thought that I could kill a man until I had a daughter. (laughs) Amen. I hope that doesn't get us shut down on a live stream. I'm not making any threats. (laughs) Necessarily. Oh, but there's something about having a daughter. You've heard daddy's little girl. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, to, to see. Now, the sons are great too. Boys are great too. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying any of that, but there's something special about the bond between a dad and a daughter. As he looks at that little girl and he says, he says I'm, I'm going to protect this little girl. I'm going to love this little girl. I'm going to cherish this little girl. Oh, and if any young punk comes over. Anyway. Something special. And his daughter says she was 12, about 12 years of age. She was young. She was young, but she was also in that day, would have been close to the age of being married. So she was young, but she was approaching more of an adulthood type of life. If you want to think about 12, my, my daughter, she's here, Briley, raise your hand. May 29th, how old are you going to be, Briley? She's going to be 12. I want to get a picture of what, what a 12-year-old girl looks like in the context here. Look right, look, right, look right there. That's about how old this young girl would have been. We've got a religious leader who desperately loves his daughter, and she's 12 years of age, and we find out that she was dying. Was dying. Oh, when I think about things in life that would feel too heavy for me to for me to bear, a weight too heavy to to handle, it would be the death of a child. I just every time I see it in a, in a movie, I, I just get choked up. The idea of, of seeing your child suffer, it just, every time without fail, I think about that. I just, I struggle. And I know some of you, many of you actually in our congregation, and many throughout the 49 years of, of Community Bible Church, have lost children. I know some of you understand what it's like to lose a, 
a, a, a baby in the womb. I, I know some of you understand what it's like to lose a young baby, a young child. I, I, I know some of you understand what it's like to lose an adult child. I know some of you understand what it's like to lose a grown, well, a, over adult type of child, an, old, an older person. I, like, we've been in, in our church, we, many of you have experienced that. So as you come to this text and, 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 you, and you understand just how desperate Jairus is to, to see that his kid is dying and he's struggling, you understand the tug. You understand the feelings. You understand the sadness. You understand the hopelessness. You understand the struggle. Far more than even I can. And far more than many of us can. But this was a real father. With a real daughter. Who was really dying. Put yourself in the situation. And he comes. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. And then in verse 42, he's, or verse 41, he's pleading, Jesus, Jesus, please come to my house. Please, please come right now. Please, please come right now, Jesus. Can you imagine him trembling? Can you imagine him barely being able to get out a word? He's so desperate. He's struggling so much. Jesus, come to my house now. I know you can do it. Please come to my house and lay hands on this girl. Because I know if you do it, she'll, she'll live. Come now. Come now. And then, and then Jesus, he comes. He starts walking. Verse 42, as Jesus went, he's going, he's on his way. Jesus shows this man mercy in the moment. This desperate man who's just putting himself right before the Lord. Do you see the mercy that Jesus shows him? He he goes. But there's a problem. It said the people pressed around him. Can you imagine the crowd? The crowd's like, we've, we've, we've got issues too, Jesus. We've got problems. We're dying. I've been sick forever. You've got this crowd just, just hovering around Jesus. Jesus was on his way, and, and, and Jairus was like, we've we got to go. Here comes the crowd, blocking Jesus' way. I understand what that's like. You see, pre-COVID, we used to have traffic in Atlanta. You'd go see, I'd never forget, like, I'd have some mornings where, like, I had to get to work, and there was a big problem at the restaurant, and then I'd have to get on 75 South, and it wasn't going. It wasn't moving. And I remember sitting there, and I'm sitting there in that traffic, and like it's an hour and a half till I'm gonna get there because of the traffic. And I'm just anxious for an hour and a half. And ain't no praise song or podcast gonna do it. I'm like, I gotta go. You know what that's like? We've got somewhere to be, we've got something to do. It's important. There's traffic. Jesus was in this moment. Jesus didn't have, like, you know, a car. He could just honk and move through, move it. There's a crowd, desperate crowds, desperate people blocking the way. They're all desperate. They all feel as desperate as Jairus, all of them. Here they are, pressing in. And then in, in this, among this giant crowd, we find one woman. One woman that sticks out. One woman that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention. One needy woman. One desperate woman. One hopeless woman among many that Luke points out here. And this woman was suffering because of a medical condition that she had for 12 long years. 12 years. Verse 43, this specific medical condition is a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She was hemorrhaging for 12 long years. Over a decade. Imagine struggling with medical condition 
Now, some of you may have. Some of you maybe have struggled with medical conditions for years and years, over a decade, like this woman. You know the pain. You know the struggle. You, you, you know that with medical conditions, it doesn't just come with physical pain, but it also comes with emotional pain, even just physical, uh, uh, spiritual struggles. I mean, it's, this is a real deal. Twelve long years this woman has struggled. Hemorrhaging. And this woman, it tells us, verse 43, she spent all her living on physicians. All of it. Spent every last dime trying to get this medical condition figured out. If you go read the Talmud, you can see there's lots of different types of prescriptions of what, what maybe uh, 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 rabbis would have prescribed, all different concoctions. I won't get into it, but whatever she tried didn't work. The next great medical craze, it didn't work. That advice from the physician, it didn't work. She tried it all. She spent all her money. She's broke. And she said, I couldn't be healed by anybody. She's hopeless. And she's helpless. But maybe you look at this woman and, and you think that, that the biggest problem that she had was this hemorrhage. Was her physical problems. And to be honest with you, that was the least of her worries. The least of her worries was the hemorrhaging. There was something greater at play here. While her physical suffering was great, it paled in comparison to her spiritual and her social suffering. Because of this specific condition that Leviticus speaks of, this woman, with her discharge of blood, her continual discharge of blood for, for 12 years, she was considered perpetually unclean. For 12 long years, she was considered perpetually unclean. And when you, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to go look, you can. I'm not going to read it all. But Leviticus chapter 15, it speaks to these issues. It speaks to, and these, I know these, are, these are topics that everyone's like, you know, they get, you know, a little, little, the blush makes you blush a little bit, and that's fine. But Levit Leviticus 15, it speaks of, of a woman's menstrual cycle. During, during her menstrual cycle, she is unclean. But at the end, at the end, of, at the end of her menstrual cycle, there's, there's a process of purification, and at, at the end of it, she's clean. Until it comes back again. But when a woman, and in Leviticus 15, 25 through 31, you can, you can study more about this subject if you would desire later. Um, what you see is that if a woman had a constant flow of blood, or she was hemorrhaging constantly, she was unclean until it was fixed. She was perpetually unclean for 12 long years. As long as she had this condition, she was unclean. And not only that, not only that, everything that she sat on would be unclean. Again, Leviticus 15, go look it up. Everything that she sat on would be unclean. Not only that, anyone who would touch anything that she sat on would be unclean. And not only that, in verse 31 of Leviticus 15, go look it up if you don't believe me. It says this, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that was in their midst. By the law of God, by the holy, righteous law of God, she was removed from the presence of other people because of her uncleanness. This woman was not allowed in the presence of the life of Israel. She wasn't allowed in, to the temple. 
She was ostracized. She was broke. She was lonely. She was unclean. She lost it all in life because of this disease. Many commentators would, would speculate that such a woman would, would likely have even been divorced by her husband because of such a, an event. Here we find this desperate woman who was supposed to be by herself until she was healed. She comes and she approaches Jesus. She enters into the crowd. She's desperate. She's tried it all. She spent all her money. She has no hope, no options. It's either I spend the rest of my life broke and lonely and unclean, or I come to Jesus. Or I come to Jesus. So she comes to Jesus. She makes her way through the crowd. She takes the risk. She knows, I can't, I can't touch people. I can't be around people. But I have to risk it. I have to risk it. So she comes and she touches Jesus' tassels the, the, on, on, his, on his robe. And what happens? She's healed. She's healed. Does that amaze you? Like, eh, we've already seen it. We've already seen uh, Jesus heal the demoniac. We've already seen Jesus heal the, the, the leprosy. We've seen Jesus calm the storm. This ain't anything that big of a deal. Do we see Jesus' sovereignty here on display? His sovereignty over disease. No words spoken. No medical procedure. No concoction. No vaccine. Nothing. Simply touching Jesus' robe. And she is healed of her disease. Think, think about this for a moment. According to the law, of, if this woman is touching someone else, it would have made them unclean. She, the risk here, am I going to make this man unclean? I don't know, but I know he can make me clean. I know he can make me clean. And so this woman, she comes and she, she touches Jesus, and Jesus is not made unclean, friends. Jesus is not made unclean by her uncleanliness. Jesus heals her and makes her clean. Jesus wasn't made unclean by the woman, the, 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 the woman who fell at his feet and, and put perfume on his feet. Jesus wasn't made unclean by the man with leprosy. Oh no, friends, these unclean folks come to Jesus, and you know what? He makes them clean. He makes them clean. That's our Savior. As Christ comes and He, and he fulfills the law, He makes them clean. You cannot come, friend. You cannot come to Jesus and make Him unclean. You cannot come to Jesus and make him unholy. He is holy. Those who come to Christ, he makes clean. And what does Jesus do? He draws attention to the event, which is interesting. Because you can imagine in such, in such a tight crowd, all these people around Jesus, probably pandemonium and chaos. There are probably a lot of people touching him and, 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 and grasping at him. And he draws attention to the event. And he, he, he says, here, who was it that touched me? Everybody denies it, which is funny. Because Peter's like, uh, geez, everybody's touching you, man. I don't know. Like, 20 people have probably, you know, you're making your way through this crowd. You've probably been touched a hundred times. But what, like, what, what, what do you mean, Jesus? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's something, there was something unique about this one person that touched me. 
Because I, I perceive that power has gone out from me. Well, of course he perceives it, but Jesus was sovereign over it. Jesus sends the power. It's like Jesus didn't have control over the situation. And Jesus is, I believe here, Jesus is highlighting this one woman and her faith. I think there's a bunch of crowds there who actually didn't have faith in Jesus. They weren't putting their whole hope and trust and faith in Jesus, but there was one. There was one. You know, as, as Matt preached a few weeks ago, he did a good job on the parables and the soils, and look at these crowds. And in, the, in these crowds, there's going to be like three-fourths of these crowds that, that are, don't really want anything to do with Jesus. There's going to be one type of soil, one type of soil that bears fruit. And Jesus here, he, I believe that he's, he's highlighting the faith of this woman and coming to Jesus and risking it all to come to Jesus. And he calls her out. And, 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 and the woman, it says, this, she saw that she was not hidden. People knew this is the, that's, that's the one right here. Hey, do you see this? Do you see not, not not to be probably vulgar here, but do you see the one with the blood stains on her on her on her outfit here? This one right here, probably the un. She's the one that touched you. Everybody knew it. She couldn't be hidden, and so she comes trembling and falling down before him, and she declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and the fact that she was immediately healed. Why is she falling down? And I, I believe she was probably at that point fearing for her life because she knew, like, I've been caught. Someone like me would not have been, should not have been in a crowd like this, better yet touching someone of notoriety like this rabbi. She was trembling. She was afraid. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This word for made you well is, is, is in the Greek, it's sozo. It's actually your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman's full faith was in the one that could heal her. This woman's whole faith was in Jesus the Messiah. This woman saw Jesus because she had been given eyes to see. She saw Jesus for who he was. Your faith has made you well. Friend, go in peace. Jesus can take the most wretched human being, the most sinful heart, the most vile person, the most unclean of the unclean, and he can clean them. And send them and say, go in peace. Jesus gives us peace. I know at this point, maybe you've dozed off. Many of you are still with me, but let me ask you this, everybody. Let me ask you this. Look at me for one moment. Do you have peace? Do you? As you're sitting in your seat today, let me ask you, do you have peace? As, as, you've, as you've thought through your past week, maybe your past 24 hours, has it been one of peace? I'm not talking some yin-yang kind of thing. I'm talking about true peace. Just a soul-satisfying peace. A peace that knows I'm reconciled to God. A peace that knows that I, that I am in the firm grip of Christ's hand and nothing can snatch me from it. A, a, a peace that knows beyond all certainty I am in Christ. I am His and He is mine. A peace that knows beyond all certainty 
that I've been forgiven of my sins, I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and that I will spend eternity worshiping Christ Jesus. Do you have that peace? I pray that you do. I know oftentimes when, when, when I, I'll be honest, I, I do feel at times my peace wanes. Maybe yours does as well. And oftentimes when I struggle with, with peace, I, I, it's not because I, I have a physical disease. It's because of my sin. I often have sin in, in, in my life. And in that moment, I, I, I fix my eyes and my thoughts on my sin. And I start to struggle. I start to identify as the unclean individual. One thing that plagues all of us is sin. Each and every one of you. Myself included. How do you respond in that moment to your sin? With your sin? Talking about that sin that you can't shake. I'm talking about that sin that that you just keep committing. I just keep struggling in this one area. We know it's not just one area, but this one thing that the Lord keeps putting upon your heart. The the sin you found yourself struggling with for years even. Is it bringing a lack of peace? What are you doing with it? How do you respond? Maybe it's Maybe it's laziness. You're struggling with, with being a sluggard. You're, you're, you're lazy. And you know it. Maybe it's yelling at your family. Just yell at my kid. Ah, you know, I'm just going to make an excuse for it. But every time, every time I yell at my kids, I just, know, I, just, I just feel this deep conviction. Am I even saved? You been there? Am I the only one? Maybe it's pornography. For years you've struggled with this issue. And every time you, 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 you fall and you succumb, you think, Am I, I don't have peace. Am I saved? Maybe it's drunkenness. Just another hard day. It's been a hard day. It's been a hard week. Take the edge off. One drink leads to five drinks. And maybe it's gossip. You're just identifying as a gossip. You're struggling. And every time, you know, you get around the people and you, from the church, you get around your friends, and you have another gossip conversation. And in the moment, it feels so good. But then afterwards, you're like, man, I just, that's not who I'm supposed to be in Christ. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's legalism. Maybe, maybe it's not even these, these sins of, of, of commission, but maybe it's, I, I'm struggling. I don't have peace. I, I'm struggling with depression, with anxiety, with joylessness, with anger. I don't have peace. I don't. What do you do? Where is the first place you go? What's the first thing you do? What is it? What will fix your problems? What will fix it? Is it self-help books? Maybe we want to go to self-help books. We like self-help books because we think that, that, that like all the problems are within ourselves. That I've just got to try a little bit harder. I've got to think, I've got to wake up each morning, I've got to, I've got to have some positive affirmations, and I've just got to think well of myself and speak kindly about myself, and, and I just need to go buy the book that says, girl, wash your face, because all you need is a little face wash. You know, you need to get up in the morning, you need to try a little harder, you, you, just, you need to think good about yourself, because darn it, you're worth it. Your problem is how you think about yourself. That's the religion of our culture. Your solution is not inside of you, friends. If you got books like that, burn them. That's a lie from the pit of hell. 
Don't tweet it. Don't buy it. Don't read it. Burn it. Maybe it's, you know, I, I just got to listen to some podcasts that make me feel just a little bit better about myself. To, to give me, give me a, I need, I need a few tips about how to beat pornography. I need a few tips about yelling at my family. I need a few tips about drunkenness. I just need some tips. Give me some tips. Something that I can do. Maybe it's an accountability group. Maybe it's an app. Maybe it's taking all the drinks out of my, out of my house and just burn, whatever that is. I need something that I can do. Maybe it's an Enneagram. I just need to know myself better. And I need to know these people that trigger me so that I can avoid them. Because again, the problem is outside of me. If I just cut these people out of my life, no problems. I'll have perfect peace. You know, maybe if I had more money, maybe if my husband brought in a few more bucks, our marriage would be great. Maybe if my wife didn't spend so much, our marriage would be great. Maybe I just need to change the scenery. You know, maybe I just need to go join another church. Maybe I need to go get another spouse. Just change my scenery, change my circumstances, do something that I can do, and I'll have peace. I'll be happy. I'll have joy. Friends, the only solution to your problems and the only way to obtain peace is in Jesus Christ. Period. Period. Colossians 2, 6 through 8 says this, So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Continue to identify yourself and, and your, your thoughts, your solutions, the way you walk in him, in Christ Jesus. Rooted, rooted and built up in him. You see that? Strengthened in the faith in Christ, as you were taught and over, overflowing with thankfulness. Listen, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive theology, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. Oh, I know enough about this world, I know, I know enough about myself, and probably about you to know that when we're struggling, with unrepentant sin, we're struggling with a lack of peace. Our first temptation is to say, I just want to do what the world does. I want to be, I just want to find something to do, rely on myself, pick myself up by my bootstraps, and fix the problem on my own. You never will fix the problem. Instead, I appeal to you with 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, confess our uncleanliness to the Lord. Confess our struggle to the Lord. Simply fall before the Lord and confess, I'm a sinner, Lord. I struggle, Lord. I'm joyless, Lord. I'm depressed, Lord. I'm anxious, Lord. I'm an idolater, Lord. I'm prideful, Lord. I lust, Lord. Come before the Lord. In 1 John 1, 9, and we see this. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us, to make us clean, to make us clean from all unrighteousness. You don't need to fix your eyes on the philosophies of this world. You don't need to fix your eyes on yourself. You don't need to fix your eyes on your sin. You don't need to fix your eyes on your lack of fruitfulness. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one that makes us clean. Jesus doesn't call us to cleanse ourselves, to kind of get dressed and put on our best outfit and make the most of ourselves before we come to Christ. We don't need to take a shower or, or wash our face. We come to Jesus filthy and dirty. And you know what? He makes us clean. He makes us clean. Jesus brings hope to the unclean. 
shortly to Jesus brings hope to the dead. Jesus brings hope to the dead. What a, what a crazy sentence. What a crazy idea that our Lord Savior brings hope to the dead. Can you think of anything more hopeless than being dead? But we see this here in, 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 in verse 49. Jesus has been hijacked by this other woman as he's on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter. He's hijacked by this crowd. He's hijacked by this woman. He gets involved in this kind of conversation in verse 49. It says, while he was still speaking. So he's, he's still dealing with this situation. He's still talking to the crowds. He's still talking to this woman. He's probably encouraging her. And Jairus is probably like in the corner like, bro, she's dying. Come on, Jesus. In that moment, Jairus' worst fears come to fruition as someone from his household comes and says, your daughter is dead. Your child has died. She's lost. All hope at this point is lost. Zero hope. Zero chance, right? They requested that the group not even trouble this teacher anymore. Listen, look, look, look at how they address him. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. If you just see Jesus as a good teacher... That Jesus was a teacher. Jesus is a teacher. He's not less than a teacher. Oh, but he's far more than a teacher, friends. Far more than a philosopher. Far more than a moral man. He's sovereign of the situation. But if you, if, if you just view Jesus as a teacher, then, then the natural response is don't bother Jesus anymore because he can't fix this. He can't help this. But Jesus hearing this, he says, don't fear. Only believe and she will be made well. Jesus in complete control. <laughs> as this father probably fell to his knees as, as this report comes back to him that your daughter is dead. <laughs> don't fear. Don't fear. My daughter is dead. Sounds a little bit in, inconsiderate. Sounds like it lacks a little empathy. It would if I said it. But Jesus, who's sovereign over it, a sovereign over the situation, don't fear. Believe and she will be made well. And so he, he, he goes to their house. He doesn't allow anyone to enter except Peter, John, and James. And the father and mother of the child. Like, why is he bring Peter, John, and James? That's kind of weird. Like, you know what I mean? What? I think, you know, a little foreshadowing here. I think Jesus, as, we, as we'll talk about next week, Jesus is about to send the apostles out to do ministry, to, to, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. He's going to give them all authority over this type of ministry. So Jesus is giving them a little on-the-ground training, I believe, here, allowing them to see what they're about to go do. And he's there in the room with the father and mother of the child. And they and they and they look and, and, and they look on the bed and, and she's and she's lying there, this this lifeless body, this corpse, this dead body of, of a twelve year old girl. And the mother and the father, it says all were weeping. They're all weeping and mourning for her. They're struggling. They see the depths of sadness here. The, the, the depth of hopelessness. And here comes Jesus again, and he says, do not weep. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. I think what Jesus is getting at, I mean, she clearly was dead. It's about to say her spirit returned in a second. Spoiler alert. She was dead. But I think from an ultimate standpoint, it wasn't you know, an ult dead in an ultimate sense. Jesus was about to, to, to bring her back. And taking her by the hand, Jesus says, child, arise. What's interesting here is, not only was a woman who was struggling with hemorrhaging unclean, and anybody who touched such a woman would be unclean, you touched a dead body, you would also be unclean. 
Oh, but yet here comes Jesus, and Jesus in his sovereignty. In his sovereignty, Jesus comes, and he, he grabs this dead corpse by the hand. And he's not made unclean. But he breathes life into this dead corpse. He says, child, arise. And that child gets up. He raises the dead. He gives life to this child. Verse 55, and her spirit returned and she got up at once. Oh, and I love it, Jesus says. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. A physical resurrection with physical implications. Go feast. Go eat. Reminds me of the fact that Jesus, after, after he was died, and after three days rose again, he meets up with his disciples, and, he, and, and you know what he wants to do? He wants something to eat. Jesus, he doesn't just raise the dead here. He feeds her and nourishes her. And her parents were amazed, and, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Two stories here. One of great faith. A girl who risks it all. Another man who does risk a lot, but it's not a perfect faith. There's a point in which they're all laughing at Jesus. There's a point in which all hope seems lost and so they don't, so they don't bother Jesus. But Jesus pursues the situation. Jesus works in spite of faith or lack of faith or imperfect faith. Jesus in his sovereignty and his mercy, he pursues. And this young girl, as Tom talked about last week, he said, Speaking of the demoniac, it's a picture of all of us. Well, guess what? This young girl also is a picture of each one of us who are in Christ Jesus. Each one of us is Colossians. Uh, Tom referenced Ephesians 2 last week. I'll go to Colossians 2 this week. It says the same thing. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. When you were dead, you know what dead people do? Nothing. You ever been to a funeral? You ever been to a funeral where the, where the, where, where the body ever did anything? No. It doesn't get up. A dead body stays dead. And apart from Christ, this might be you this morning, apart from Christ, you are dead in your sin. You are dead. Praise be to God for his mercy. Praise be to God who, by his initiative, by his grace, by his mercy, and by his power, makes us alive in Christ Jesus. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We are made alive and we are made clean in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is, if you are in Christ, that is true of you. Oh, as we run this race, as we, as we think about Ephesians chapter 12, we, we, we run this race and, and we cast off the sin. Yes, we cast off the sin. But you know where we fix our eyes? We fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you have no peace today? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Do you have no hope today? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you struggling to walk in obedience? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on yourself. Don't fix your eyes on your sin. Don't fix your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is our only hope. And as we read this, as Cameron already read this morning, as I close, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only peace? What is your only hope? What is your only comfort? It's not money, it's not sex, it's not drugs, it's not career, it's not notoriety, it's not any of that stuff. 
It's not a better spouse. It's not to have a child. It's not to have the house. What is our only comfort in life and death? Singular. One. That I am not my own. That I am not my own. But belong. Body and soul and life and in in death. To my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ is our hope, church. Christ is our only hope. Period. Oh, may we gaze upon him. May we fix our eyes upon him. May we worship him. And may we go out here walking in who we are in Christ with joy. Oh, and friends, with peace. Amen.